Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Tides of History early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. Hi, everybody. From Wondery, welcome to another episode of Tides of History. I'm Patrick Wyman. Thanks so much for being here with me today. The wars between the Greeks and the Persians occupy a foundational place in the birth and development of a quote-unquote Western world. They've held that place for a long time, literally since they were going on. They were a touchstone for Greek identity, their sense of themselves and their place in the world, part of a shared memory that bound them together in opposition to the outside world. That is mostly the version of events that we get, one both tinged by and constitutive of the role of the Persian Wars in ancient Greek memory. But these conflicts were so much more than that, and less. The Persian side of the wars, their reasoning, their perspective, their goals, have received far less attention. Much of that has to do with the nature of the source material, but it's also been a relative lack of study of the Achaemenid Empire on its own terms. Thankfully, in recent decades, that has changed dramatically. We can now understand so much more about the Persians, and that includes a much different understanding of their wars with the Greeks. Today's guest is an expert on the Persian Empire, and especially the Persian Empire's involvement in the Aegean world. John Highland is professor of history at Christopher Newport University. He has published extensively on Achaemenid Persia, including an excellent book entitled Persian Interventions, the Achaemenid Empire, Athens, and Sparta, and numerous book chapters and journal articles. Professor Highland, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So what drew your interest to Persia and to the Persian Wars in the first place? How'd you get here? So it all really started with Herodotus. Uh, my dad is also a historian and a, a classic scholar. And uh, when I was about kindergarten aged, uh, he was studying for Greek exams uh, and he would read me Herodotus as, as bedtime stories and, you know, while he was doing his translations. I've got this strong memory of a Greek alphabet that he made for me so I could <laughs> learn it. And C was for Xerxes. Uh, and there was a little picture that went with it of a, a Persian king wailing and making a fist. So I think I had that embedded from an early age and and the idea of the Persian-Greek Wars was really exciting to me as a, as a kid. When I was in high school, I really got into uh, reading military history of all periods uh, and, again, kept gravitating towards the ancient. Uh, and the Persian-Greek Wars seemed this really dramatic moment in world history that pulled me in. So finally, I went to college and uh, signed up for Greek history classes uh, with uh, Barry Strauss, who's a, a professor at Cornell University. And Barry hooked me on... Greek history, but also on the the Persians. Taking his classes, I, I found myself always wanting to know more about the Persian point of view. And again, the Persians were always the big power in the room that affected whatever the Greeks were doing, even long after the invasions of Greece was over. Barry convinced me to take Greek. And then the more I took, the more I realized I, I really wanted to study the Persian empire on its own terms. And Luckily, I was able to have the opportunity to go to grad school at the University of Chicago in an interdisciplinary program on the Committee on the Ancient Mediterranean World. Uh, and that gave the opportunity to study the Greek world and Greek language, but also to study the Persian Empire and the ancient Near East at the Oriental Institute, now the Institute for the Study of Ancient Cultures. Uh, and they gave me the opportunity to really study Achaemenid history uh, and to learn the wealth of sources that that let us teach on this remarkable empire uh, from its own point of view. 
So that feels like a path that would not have been available even a few decades ago, that this is a field that has expanded remarkably um, in the last 30 or so years to the point where it's almost unrecognizable compared to the kind of textbook accounts of the Persian Empire that you would have gotten if you were reading a, if, if like me, you were reading a world history book for middle schoolers in the 1990s. That's very true. Really, scholarship in the 1980s and 1990s transformed and, and opened up the field. Uh, and there are so many new questions that are coming into play. We're asking better questions about the Persian Empire, but there's also so much more evidence. Texts, documents, uh, archaeological materials from excavations and field surveys, uh, art historical materials. So the study of the empire and the ability to access its voices has, has just broadened so much beyond when, when I was in college. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. So one of the things that you have worked on, this is one of the big things in the studies of the Achaemenid Empire that, that are coming out now, is the Persepolis Fortification Archive. Uh, incredibly exciting. Um, this is one of our major sources now for the early years of the Persian Empire. It's just now starting to understand it. So what is the archive? What kind of text does it contain? And how can we use it to, to understand the empire? Uh, the archive's a collection of administrative documents. Uh, I tell my students it, it's basically a... Uh, it's the receipts of empire. Um, it illuminates the day-to-day -day workings of empire. So where we don't have narrative sources describing events in Persian terms, uh, we have the check stubs, uh, and we can see all sorts of insights into Persian society from the uh, life of laborers at the bottom of the system to the movement and the conspicuous consumption of the king and his queens and his nobles and family members. So it's incredibly valuable. It gives us a slice of life at every level in one region of the empire, but that region illuminates how the entire imperial system worked. The archive itself uh, comes from, it, it's a collection of tablets uh, written on uh, clay. There were probably about 15,000, maybe as many as 18,000 tablets uh, although many of them are fragmented, so getting a precise number is difficult. They were excavated during the University of Chicago's digs at Persepolis, Iran, uh, in the early 1930s. And then they were transferred to Chicago uh, by a long-term loan from the Shah of Iran, uh, Reza Shah Pahlavi, on the condition that scholars at Chicago who were studying the linguistics uh, would publish them and then return them to Iran uh, once they, they had been given a, a thorough uh, scholarly study. 
Uh, again, that was the 1930s, and then World War II happened. Uh, and over the following decades, there were scholars in Chicago and a few other institutions who were working on these, but largely in isolation. Again, it was uh, originally uh, scholars named George Cameron and Richard Halleck uh, in 1940s through uh, 1970s who were working on aspects of this. And then they passed on to their students, including my teacher, grad school mentor, Matt Stolper. And the volume of materials made publication extraordinarily difficult. Uh, Richard Halleck was studying these and published more than 2,000 original tablets in 1969, and then a handful after that. But uh, again, the resources for study were limited, and so the pace of publication was slow. Uh, it all changed in the 21st century when a lawsuit threatened the scholarly study of the tablets. Uh, Chicago had begun to return some of them to Iran to fulfill its original agreement, but this got tangled up in a, a lawsuit in American courts in which the government of Iran uh, was being sued by victims of terrorist attacks and associated with state sponsorship of terrorism. The university received a court order to surrender the entire archive to be uh, auctioned off to try to pay off the proceeds of Iranian government assets. And the government of the Islamic Republic wouldn't cooperate with American courts, didn't recognize their jurisdiction. Uh, so the lawsuit ran from 2004 to 2018. It ended with a United States Supreme Court decision uh, in favor of Chicago uh, and the defendants. Basically, that galvanized research. Chicago was able to fundraise. Other institutions got involved. They made this argument for preservation of uh, civic and cultural objects that shouldn't just be items for sale or for auction. And it transformed the field. It, it uh, generated so much more attention and funding, and they were able to bring in teams of scholars and work on these. So it's largely due to that that thousands upon thousands of tablets that have been unpublished have been coming out and are still coming out. That is an absolutely incredible story. I had no idea that it happened. That is amazing. I had no idea that these tablets had gotten caught up in in kind of international politics and the and the politics of the war on terror. That is crazy. That's so cool. I mean, this is one of the things that makes a Caymanid studies really exciting, I think, especially in comparison to the way that we understand the Greek world, is people have been reading Herodotus for centuries. People have been reading Aeschylus for centuries. These are texts that we know. There, I mean, there are canonical interpretations and schools of interpretation of these texts. But to deal with genuinely new evidence and to be able to build your picture of an empire from the ground up and from the middle out, that's an incredibly exciting place to be in a field. It, it really is. And again, it, it depends on teamwork. The archives themselves are multilingual. Uh, they include textual evidence and uh, visual evidence. There are thousands of seal impressions that have revolutionized our understanding of Achaemenid Persian art uh, and uh, the role of uh, art and symbolism uh, in the empire from official propaganda to actual uh, artistic production and, and motifs. So the interpretation has depended on bringing together scholars of both Elamite, that's the major language of the archive, a pre-Persian language of southwestern Iran, but also Aramaic. Uh, there are hundreds of Aramaic tablets, as well as the 10,000 or so inscribed Elamite tablets. Uh, and then there are thousands of tablets with no inscription, but with seal impressions. Uh, so art historians, linguists, historians who work on different aspects of society, religion, the economy, 
war and state organization have all been able to come in and be a part of this. Uh, my role has been limited because I'm really a textual historian. I've moved east from the Greek world and started to see the bigger world of the empire. But I've been able to work with and get support from scholars like Matt Stolper and Wouter Henkelmann. And Henkelmann is the current leader of the project working on the Elamite texts. Uh, so he is in the process of publishing things that Halleck didn't uh, and also generating preliminary text collations that he's uh, generously shared with scholars such as myself who, who want to come in and work on parts of the archive. So this teamwork has really made a lot of amazing stuff possible. Well, I mean, that, I mean that's so cool on so many levels. I, and I, I do want to talk about the, the Persian Wars, but real quick, one more just kind of observation on this is it makes the Persian Empire, which we usually see through Greek eyes, seem much more comfortable in the tradition of Near Eastern empires that it springs from. It makes it seem like it has much more in common with the, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, like a massive archive of cuneiform tablets, uh, of clay tablets with administrative texts. That seems like you can obviously see the kind of institutional and structural lineage much more clearly. Yeah, you can. And and that's been another revolution for Achaemenid studies in, in the last few decades. Uh, it, it's working in parallel with tremendous advances in Assyriology. Uh, and uh, there is such a wealth of Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian evidence, including much larger uh, amounts of documentary material that are not yet published and, and are in the process of study and publication. So that's also affected the field. As I'm looking at the Persian Empire, I've been reading uh, a tremendous amount of recent output in uh, Assyrian and Babylonian scholarship. And you see direct continuities uh, in terms of the state ideology, the image of the king, the organization of provincial governance and the economy, uh, and military organization and logistics. That's been a huge influence on my trying to understand the Persian-Greek wars from a Persian point of view. We often have Persian ideology. We have the day-to-day -day framework from the Persepolis tablets, but then we get more rich information on the military side from the Assyrians. Uh, and you can put that in dialogue with Greek evidence such as Herodotus. And, and it really does change your perspective on what the Persians were doing, what they thought they were doing. Um, and all, it, it tells you a lot about how the Greeks were seeing them when you see the contrast between those things. Yeah, it, it certainly does. It's an important reminder that the Greeks are deeply connected with the empire, both as a a subject people and a trade partner. And, and uh, again, uh, we'll get into more of the details, but there are many different Greek perspectives on Persia. Um, we have a number of canonical texts which tend to center a very Athenian perspective at certain points, often from idiosyncratic authors uh, who have their own axes to grind. Uh, and it's really important to be able to see the Persian Empire in its own terms. There was an attempt to do this starting really in the 1970s and 1980s with post-colonial scholarship uh, and trying to get away from the view of Persia as the other. Now, there's also a broader 21st century uh, development we can think of as the imperial turn uh, and you know, studying systemic models of empires in world history. Uh, and that's also helped to move away from a privileging of Greece and Rome as ancestors of the British Empire or the American Empire uh, and Persia as you know, the uh, demonized opponent. 
Uh, and instead, we can see similarities at structural levels between all of these empires at different periods. That in particular is such an exciting development from my perspective to see empire as a kind of a flexible way of thinking about power and about the relationship between centers and peripheries and tributary peoples and and elites. Like to, to break it down in those terms, instead of seeing anything that deviates from a norm that we center on Rome and, and the British Empire by extension as being somehow not empires or not real empires or somehow lacking in some way, um, it's just it, it opens up so many more lines of possible analysis and fruitful ways of understanding the past on its own terms. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and when I'm teaching uh, my Persian history seminar with my students this semester, we're always going back and forth between ancient and modern because the, each text uh, or each set of evidence that we look at is uh, mediated through and, and is shaped by modern Im imperial experiences. So the Bisutun inscriptions deciphered by Henry Rawlinson and others in the 19th century, the Modern knowledge of that and cuneiform languages is heavily shaped by the great game between the British Empire and Russia, uh, with Iran as a buffer zone in the middle. Uh, and again, Iranian nationalist perspectives in the 20th century and American-Iranian relations, for better and for worse, uh, have shaped you know, who, who can study and how they study this evidence and, and what questions we bring to it. So turning a little bit toward the Persians and the Greeks, how did the Greeks writ large kind of think of the Persian Empire? You mentioned that there were there were multiple different perspectives that a lot of the ones we have, as you said, are Athenian perspectives or they're idiosyncratic or they're born of particular circumstances at particular times. What are kind of the general trends in those perspectives? It's important to recognize that there's no such thing as Greece in the ancient world, that Hellas as a nation state. Uh, is a creation of the 19th century and the Greek War of Independence um, in 1820s to uh, early 1830s. Um, there are multiplicities of ancient Greek perspectives. And again, Athens and Sparta are part of a world of Greek polis that spanned uh, the Black Sea to the Western Mediterranean. We have a number of historical accounts that come out of Athens or are in, in close dialogue with Athenian perspectives. Athens played a major role in trying to define a pan-Hellenic, an all-Greek identity in the 5th century after it defended its governance against the Persian invasion in 480 and 479. There's a contest for power among different would-be hegemonic leaders in the Greek city-state world. Uh, and Athens shapes a powerful Persian wars narrative in which being Greek is defined by the side that you lined up with uh, in 480. But it's crucial to remember that uh, a vast number of Greeks uh, were subjects of the Persian Empire, uh, that not only exiles from Athens and Sparta went and resided in the Persian Empire and had productive experiences under Darius and Xerxes, but you also have numerous city-states and regional ethnic confederations uh, that are very comfortable with Persian rule. Uh, so you have Argos in the Peloponnese, a, a critical center of uh, Greek mythology and culture. When Xerxes is getting ready to come to Greece in 480, Herodotus tells us that the Persians and the Argives communicate, uh, and they come up with a fictive genealogy in which the Greek culture hero Perseus 
goes to Persia. Persia sounds a lot like Persians. So the Persians are clearly the, the byproduct of a fling that Perseus had during his worldwide adventures. Uh, this makes them cousins. Uh, and again, this kind of fictive mythological genealogy can be used to construct a productive relationship uh, that involves trade or the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, Argos hates Sparta and Sparta hates Argos. Uh, and if Sparta is opposing a Persian move into the uh, central Greek region, then Argos is going to find a way to be friends with the Persians. Uh, Ionian Greek elites visit the Persian court and reside in Persia. There's at least one Persepolis fortification tablet that's in Greek. Uh, it's, it's a receipt for a wine issue. Uh, but an article that came out this year has connected it to an official uh, who is responsible for many Elamite language receipts in the local administration in southern Iran. Uh, he's someone who seems to be a sub-district governor of the province of Persia itself. Uh, and he seems to be a multilingual Greek who, who can exist with a Persian or Elamite-sounding name and who can function in the administration. He's probably emblematic of many people who live in the Persian world or who live in the borderlands and maybe intermarry with Persians. Uh, there are mixed marriages. So it's the Athenian view, Persia as the great enemy empire, the enemy of freedom that Athens defeats, even that view is is more complicated. It's it's used for Athenian empire building to try to get other Greeks to pay taxes to Athens. But by the Peloponnesian War, Athens and Sparta are both bidding for Persian financial aid. Uh, and in the early 4th century, after Sparta destroys the Athenian Empire and tears down Athens' walls, it's a Persian naval fleet that gives Athens funding and manpower to rebuild the walls. Uh, and an exiled Athenian comes back with that fleet and acts as a liaison between the two. There's cultural borrowing. There's artistic borrowing. It's much more complicated than just the wars between uh, a few of the Greeks and the Persians. Yeah, so th there's there's so much that I want to follow up on there. But the first thing is like it, when you read Herodotus's account closely, even there you can see how uncomfortably those different perspectives sit together. So when he's talking about the Ionian revolt, for example, and he talks about the devastation that the Persians bring to Ionia, and then two lines later he's talking about how some of the Ionians were so happy that the Persians had come and they they loved their new governments that they'd been given, and now they're prospering under Persian rule in the decades since the Ionian revolt. And so you can see like. There are internal contradictions, and some of that is a product of the the story that Herodotus is trying to tell, kind of the thematic, the, the overall themes. But also, you have to imagine that that's also a product of him hearing different stories from different people in his own time and trying to find some way to square them and and put them in in, in a coherent narrative. Yeah, Herodotus came from Halicarnassus. He's born in a city that's uh, a technically Doric Greek, but part of the Ionian expanse uh, and part of the Persian Empire. Uh, and as a young man, uh, he's going to experience the change from Persian imperial rule to uh, rule by the miniature Athenian empire in the Aegean. Um, we've got inscriptions from Halicarnassus, and you see, see personal names um, that are Iranian, that are Greek, that are Carian. Um, it's clearly a melting pot trade town. Uh, he inherited rather negative perspectives of the Ionian revolt that happened in his childhood. And it's not clear if his own city joined the revolt or not. 
Um, when he writes about the rebellion, he blames the rebels themselves for their failure and suggests that it brought evils on the world, on, on both Greeks and Persians. I think that in parts of his narrative, he seems to be absorbing a an official pro-Persian line in some ways in talking about the settlement after the Ionian revolt. Um, he talks about the Persians stabilizing Ionia, keeping them from fighting each other, and even uh, imposing new democracies in some of the Ionian cities, uh, which he says some people won't believe, but this happened. I think uh, he is, in some ways, he's swallowing some aspects of pro-empire ideology uh, that are just circulating among elites uh, in the empire's borderlands. Um, but ultimately, when he talks about Persia moving against Sparta and Athens, uh, he is going to invert ideology there. Uh, he's aware of Persian imperial themes and the royal image, uh, and he'll play them up to a degree. He'll give us aspects of what look like a genuine point of view, but he'll try to undercut them uh, as uh, he makes this anti-imperial case for liberty and for the opposition to uh, monarchy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all. Not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. With all of that in mind, is it possible to use Herodotus responsibly as a source for these conflicts? I mean, how, like, I mean, there's there's been so much criticism of the attempts to mine Herodotus as essentially a campaign narrative or a campaign log and to treat these things as battle reports. Like, that seems like it's pretty clearly not viable. But how can we use Herodotus to tell us about these things? Is there any way of separating his perspective or perspectives more properly from the underlying events? Herodotus is an incredibly rich source. Uh, and he brings us access uh, to a, a wide variety of uh, folktale traditions and and uh, official and unofficial narratives from his usually unnamed informants. He's not a primary source. And again, I'm deeply conscious of this teaching in a history department uh, as the ancient historian uh, and sometimes getting to teach our methodology class. Uh, and our students are steeped in rigorous training in primary source usage. I have to remind them that most ancient narrative sources are not primary, that uh, Herodotus is writing decades, or in some cases, a century or more after the events in question. So above all, we look for primary sources. 
we look for documents that can either give us a direct insight on an event or archaeological materials that can connect us directly to the event. Those are sometimes present, but all too rarely. Uh, so we do have some archaeological sites uh, where we have remnants from sieges during the Ionian Revolt. Um, a city called Paphos in Cyprus is one of these. Um, we have a few remains of the Persian physical presence in Greece, although not nearly as many as we would want. So far, archaeological finds have eluded us at the sites of naval conflicts off the Greek coast or the sites of the major Persian war battles such as Plataea. On the other hand, uh, we have the Persian textual documents we can use to provide systemic background and to check a lot of Herodotus's statements on organization, on numbers, on logistics. We don't have a roster of the Persian army in 480 that can give us how many troops there actually were. But we have Persepolis tablets that can shed a lot of light on uh, relative numbers, on movement, and on consumption rates and ration rates. Uh, we can correct Herodotus when he measures the uh, rations of Persian soldiers in wheat. We can see from the Persepolis fortification tablets that actually it's barley. That's uh, the standard food source. Uh, and those have different weights. Uh, and that, that actually affects the calculations if you want to figure out how the logistics work. We can check Herodotus on uh, some events, such as an eclipse that he reports at Sardis uh, in the beginning of Xerxes' campaign. And that can be checked. And we know there wasn't a solar eclipse at Sardis in 480 BCE. On the other hand, he reports another one in Athens and central Greece on October 2nd, 480 BCE. And we know that did occur. Uh, and in that case, we don't have Herodotus describing a Persian perspective on that eclipse. He mentions it because the Spartans see it and supposedly decide not to follow Xerxes' army when he retires from Athens as a result. But then you can read into Assyrian and Babylonian omen literature, uh, and you can look at later Persian materials in which they deal with eclipses. And again, you can apply all of this evidence uh, to get a dialogue between sources and to give us possible interpretations or likely interpretations, even when we don't have a, a full snapshot of what occurred. That's, that is a really refreshing way of coming at and understanding these things. And you were kind enough to share some of your un unpublished work that'll be coming out soon on these topics. And I was struck by how different it is than the kind of standard narratives that we get of the Persian Wars. And this is not to criticize those scholars, but like to some extent, if you're trying to tell a straightforward story of the Persian Wars, you're just going to be modifying Herodotus to some greater or lesser degree. And that that is understandable but it's also not what herodotus is doing and it, like when you the difference between reading herodotus and then reading the accounts that are based on herodotus you know herodotus tells uh, tells a story about something that happened and then there's a 15 page digression on the internal politics and beliefs of the spartan elite and then he gives you a little bit more narrative and then there's four pages on the, the persians as truth tellers so there's no like continuous narrative of events that he's telling that reads like a wikipedia article like this is clearly a text where there's a lot going on and he's doing 
doing a lot of different things in really sophisticated ways. And so it, it's the contrast between those things. When you've read the one, it's hard to go back to the other and think like, oh, yeah, sure. We're just we're we've got a straightforward narrative here. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's been really brilliant uh, literary scholarship on Herodotus and a a series of great commentaries on Herodotus's text uh, that have been produced, especially in the last two decades. And and again, in in doing the research on the the Persian perspectives, I'm also looking at all the Herodotus commentaries and and always coming back to the Greek text uh, and, you know, really trying to get a sense of what he's about as an author and how those agendas and perspectives which are fascinating in their own right, you know, how they might or might not relate to other Greek voices and to imperial realities. Yeah. yeah. So I want to follow up on that. What sources do we have on the Persian perspective of these events? We've got Herodotus's narrative. We've got the the Persepolis fortification archive and and some texts that that touch on these on the imperial background. But do we have a Persian version of this story? Do we have a Persian version of what happened in the in the in these wars? What we don't have is a narrative account. Uh, we don't have an equivalent to the royal annals that you see in the Neo Assyrian Empire um, or the temple-produced chronicles about royal achievements that you see in the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The Persian Empire under the Achaemenid dynasty uh, decisively broke with an analytic tradition, uh, a sort of book of kings that would list all of the events in order and describe what happened from a royal perspective. There are uh, a lot of scholarly studies devoted to trying to explain why that happened. The general perspective is that there's an ideological shift in which the Persian Empire is more interested in commemorating and celebrating the general worldview and the general uh, achievements in creating peace and order and prosperity uh, across the world without creating texts that dig into the specifics. That being said, I, I would also argue that this may be connected to a change in how royal campaigns work in the imperial setting. In the earlier Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, kings are taking the field almost every year as part of the royal image, uh, and they're spending months or sometimes years at a time, one after another, leading their soldiers to the frontiers. Uh, So they're creating annals or having their scribes create records that measure time and that explain the sequence of progress in their empires in terms of one campaign after another. That decisively changed because the Persian Empire was twice as big as any of its predecessors. And the kings of Persia, starting with Darius, do not go on campaign all the time. There's violence delegated at the frontiers, but as part of the new royal image, the king leads a small, selective number of expeditions early in his reign, and then transitions to managing uh, this world empire from Pakistan to the Mediterranean uh, from the center. So if you're only campaigning every few years and then Darius doesn't campaign for the last 26 years of his reign, there's no reason to commission annals uh, and to have in such and such year, Darius did nothing. Uh, And so instead, you shift towards this different ideological text. And that means we don't have a counter narrative to put directly against Herodotus. What we do get, though, is images, and that hasn't been appreciated enough in the the prior scholarship. 
there's always this complaint that we don't have the Persian written version. But we have seal images on the Persepolis fortification tablets and, and in a variety of other seals. Sometimes we have the seal itself and sometimes uh, it seen stamped on a document. We have numerous images of Persian kings or warrior figures fighting Greeks. Uh, and in, in fact, the battle images on Persian seals are mostly against either Greeks or Saka, Scythians or nomadic figures from Central Asia. There seems to be this paradigm where uh, Greeks stand in for a potential enemy of order at the edge of the universe. So you have this symbolic emphasis. There's one set of images that were found in Xerxes' treasury at Persepolis. Uh, and I've argued that they may be connected with Xerxes' campaign, at least in a general sense. They show the king in the center. He has a Greek dressed as a hoplite with a Corinthian helmet and looks like part of a shield, uh, like a large round hoplite shield. He's forced the Greek to his knees and is spearing him in the neck. Uh, and behind him, he has a rope coming from his belt uh, up to the neck of another Greek hoplite. Uh, and it seems to be a line of hoplites bound in captivity. I would argue that that's the Persian version of <laughs> what Xerxes did in Greece. Uh, but again, that it has to be set in the artistic context. There are other images on two other surviving seals that show an almost identical scene, except the victims are Egyptian. Uh, Xerxes led a first campaign against Egypt, and then shortly afterwards, a second campaign uh, to the Greek Aegean. Uh, and I've argued in other talks, and I'm going to be talking more about this in my new book, I think this is part of a visual program. That they are commemorating the campaign, probably in oral ways and artistic ways, and we have some glimpses of that in this artwork. Yeah, so these, these are almost like memory aids for a larger oral tradition about what happened and why it mattered. And that, that that would make a ton of sense on so many different levels. I mean, I especially loved what you said about the image of the Greeks as the enemies of order on the edges of empire. I keep thinking about this. If you're, you're the Persian satrap and you're sitting in Sardis and you're watching the Greek world from the edge, you're like, what in... God's name is going on here. It, just the the constant internal upheavals, the the shifting patterns of alliances, constant conflict between one city state and another. And then you've got a regular stream of Greek envoys trooping off to come see you to ask you for your support. And, and it's like you can easily see how from uh, from a, a, a Persian perspective that places a great deal of emphasis on order and chaos, truth and the lie, like that you could easily cast them as enemies of order. Like that, they, they would fit quite neatly into that category. <laughs> you can, absolutely. And I think the Persians realize, although the royal inscriptions are very simple in their lists of peoples, uh, so they're not going to itemize different cities, um, but they talk about yauna, that is Ionians, their blanket term for Greeks. Sometimes Yauna on the coast, in the sea, and across the sea, uh, or Yauna on this side of the sea, on the other side of the water. But the satraps in what's now Western Turkey are definitely able to distinguish between many different dozens or hundreds of Greek communities. Uh, and it must have been exciting and enticing for them to find all of these opportunities for interaction with this ethnic group along their border. The Persian Empire emphasizes diversity as part of the image of universal rule. Uh, so it, it celebrates in the royal inscriptions and in artwork in Iran uh, at Persepolis and Nakhche Rostam. It 
emphasizes the idea that peoples from all over the earth are all united in a common project, serving the great king who's providing peace, order, security, prosperity for all of them. So Greek embassies to the satraps and Greek exiles running away from civil wars in their city and coming and asking for help, or uh, Greek merchants passing through uh, and bringing fascinating products and bringing valuable silver into contact with Persian officials. All of that is really exciting to them. It serves the ideological image. Uh, I think a great comparison is the Roman Emperor Augustus and his race gestae. Uh, and in the later sections of it, Augustus is talking about the oikumene, the, the inhabited world, uh, and how Rome is the master of the earth. And as he discusses his subjects, he includes the Parthians. He includes Armenia. He includes India. He, he includes all of these places that Rome did not rule. But he can say, we sort of did, because the Parthians send us embassies. They come to us. They acknowledge our mastery. We, we could have taken Armenia, but we chose to give them a king of their own. And I think the Persians at a micro level think of the Greeks in that way, uh, that they can be the patrons. There are innumerable clients who come to them for help, uh, and it's flattering to empire. It's also very confusing figuring out which ones of them to listen to and who actually speaks for a Greek city. So Artaphernes, the Persian satrap, gets an embassy from the Athenian democracy in 507. As soon as democracy starts, Athens asks for Persian protection from Sparta, uh, which is threatening to attack and overthrow it. Uh, and Artaphernes says, okay, we'll include you among our subjects if you give us earth and water as a token that you accept the empire and respect the great king. And Herodotus' line here is a little ambiguous. It's not clear whether the ambassadors gave the earth and water physically or said that they were willing to. But then they went back to Athens and the Athenian assembly supposedly rejected their decision. And then within a few years, Athens' former tyrant approached the satrap Artaphernes. Uh, and Artaphernes sent Athens a message and said, we would like you to take your proper ruler back. It, it seems that you've <laughs> overthrown him. And if you don't want trouble, you should let him come home. Uh, so what you seem to have is these competing factions, each representing themselves as the legitimate government of Athens. And the satrap is willing to work with one, and then they don't seem willing to continue the communication, and so he accepts another. Uh, and later in the Peloponnesian War, Persia is intervening to finance Sparta against Athens, and this Athenian exile, Alcibiades, shows up. Uh, and he's on the run from both cities. He's, he's under a death sentence in both cities and is trying to leverage Persian aid to get his sentence of exile at Athens removed. In order to do that, he tries to sabotage the diplomacy between Persia and Sparta and sends fraudulent letters to Athens claiming that the Persian king will finance them if they cancel his exile. Uh, and this leads the Persians into diplomatic blunders because they're trying to work with this person as an agent. And he's deeply unreliable. <laughs> I mean, you you get a sense that when you, when you explain it in those terms, it makes these conflicts so much more interesting than this kind of broad brushstrokes, uh, like 
epic kind of conflict between Greek freedom and Persian despotism. When one of my big ways of understanding the past is that you always have to make room for dumb guys and mistakes. And this is fertile ground for dumb guys and mistakes, right? Like I, I think about this in the context of the beginning of the Ionian revolt and the group of exiles from Naxos who go to ask the tyrant of Miletus for help. And like, they seem kind of like dumb guys. Like this seems like a group of guys who were turfed out of Naxos. They go, they're, they're going to take it back, but they're, they've gone to the wrong guy, but he says he can help them. And then they promise anything and everything to get their position back. And then like, he leaves them at a little fort he builds for them on Naxos. <laughs> like, like this is, if, if you view that from in the grand scheme of things, that's a pretty hilarious turn of events for those dudes. Like it is, it's it's a horrible comedy of errors, and and that's yeah. that's true of imperial history at, at many periods. Read the history of the British Empire; you're going to find countless instances of incompetence as, as well as uh, racism and atrocity, and and just all sorts of. Uh, you you can't assume that imperial actors are rational actors. Yeah. Uh, and this is really important <laughs> so for understanding how empires work in messy frontier zones, uh, ancient and modern. And they're often at odds with one another and actively sabotaging one another uh, or just bad at their jobs. Uh, and so that applies to many different Greek actors and to the Persians who are interacting with them and the information chain working its way over to the king in Iran. Yeah, there's this the classic account of the British intervention in in Malaya in the 1950s is called um, trying to eat soup with a knife. And that's which which really sums up one of the issues there. Or if you like you go read any account of the Vietnam War or the French Wars in Indochina and you can see the gap between imperial perception, reality on the ground and the reports that make their way back in terms of how you formulate policy. Like we can watch this happen in a modern context and there's no real reason to think that it would have been any different, especially in the Persian imperial context when you have incredibly powerful imperial elites who all have their own interests and ambitions and things that they're trying to accomplish and a greater or lesser degree of oversight from the center, depending on who you are, um, greater or lesser freedom of action. And so it makes perfect sense that this would be just a tremendously confusing world to navigate. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, when the king gets involved and when Xerxes decides to uh, make the show of the royal image by marching to Greece with the court, uh, then you bring this whole extra level of both royal display and ceremony and ritual and also potential for all sorts of things going wrong as, as you you know, increase the number of actors and you increase the symbolic value of the performance, this further complicates anything like the effective function of empire on the frontier zones. Um, but on, on the other side, you, you see this in, certainly in Athens and Sparta. Uh, and Herodotus is very useful for his pretty critical view of both Spartans and Athenians. He, he definitely provides wonderful insights into blunders. Uh, and he doesn't present Greek military leaders against Persia as geniuses uh, in any sense, especially Pausanias, the Spartan leader at the Battle of Plataea, seems to blunder his way into victory. And up until the last minute, it still looks like the Persians could win. Herodotus is really useful in that sense of human error as a, a factor in history. Yeah, it's it's a much more uh, it, it's it is a quite human history in that sense. Like there are people doing things that people do, sometimes smart, sometimes not. It's one of the wonderful things that makes Herodotus well worth reading, um, not just because you want to learn about the Persian Wars. Like there's a lot of valuable stuff in there. 
Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You mentioned a little while ago Xerxes's trip to Greece's performance, and I thought this was such a I thought this was such a great insight. What do you think it was that Xerxes was trying to do? So he he wants to go to Persia. I mean, the Herodotus tells us, oh, he's trying to conquer Greece. He's trying to you know the Persians are trying to extend their empire to the ends of the earth. Is that really what he's trying to do? Because you you have a different perspective on this, and I'm interested. Right. I I don't think that's really. Uh, a good representation of of a, a Persian imperial viewpoint. Persia already rules the Greeks from the Persian point of view. The Greeks are included in Darius's subject lists and in Xerxes's subject lists. Um, they're numbered among the world's peoples that the, the Persians rule. Uh, and there's never a territorial sense in Greek terms of separation of Asia from Europe uh, and the sense that we've got one continent, actually two if you count Egypt and North Africa, we need to add continent number three as if this were a game of risk. Um, This is really foreign to the Persian perspective. The Persian worldview suggests that the world empire has already been achieved, but the Persian king has a mission to suppress disorder repeatedly when it arises and to try to uh, preserve Uh, Something like what we think of as the Pax Romana in the Roman world, Uh, a a sense of a broad imperial peace and prosperity with the king as the arbiter of justice for all of these different peoples. He already rules Greeks. So Xerxes already rules Greeks on his side of the sea and across the sea. He would probably include the Macedonians among those, no matter uh, whether the Athenians would accept that definition uh, or not. Um, He would probably include places where he's not collecting regular taxes, but where he has regular uh, diplomatic exchange. Uh, I'm sure that Xerxes would see Argos in the Peloponnese as, in some sense, a part of his empire. Yeah, same way that Chinese emperors saw Japan, various parts of Southeast Asia, Korea, because they were receiving envoys. Yeah, Very much so. Empire doesn't just mean that you have military garrisons in every spot and you have tax collection in every spot. Um, there are different levels of Uh, control of boots on the ground and of economic or cultural or diplomatic influence. And I think the Persians would include all of that in the world that they rule. So from their point of view, I think Athens and then Sparta, when it gets involved in helping Athens and the coalition that they build, I think that looks like a trouble spot among the Greeks who are one of the empire's subjects. But why does the king have to go there? Darius sent generals to put down the Ionian revolt. It's really different for the king to decide, we're going to travel more than 2,000 miles away from central Iran, uh, and we're going to bring the royal family 
and the palace staff. And we're going to concoct this giant expedition on both land and sea, where even if you make modest estimates of the numbers, as I'm doing, trying to take minimal figures for court size and army size and navy size, you still end up with a total human uh, manpower in the expedition uh, of maybe 200,000 people or more. So what's that about? I, I think it's about the power gesture. Darius had been king for 36 years and had created the Achaemenid dynasty proper. His son Xerxes succeeds him. Xerxes is about 35 when he comes to power and 40 years old when he marches against Greece. He's not the callow youth of Aeschylus. Uh, and when he marches to the frontier, he's already gone on one successful campaign to one corner of the empire in Egypt. But while he was there, rebellion broke out in Babylonia. And he put that down as well, successfully. Uh, and as soon as that's wrapped up, he's starting preparations to go to another corner of the empire, to Greece. Darius had campaigned four times after his succession wars. He had led an expedition to each corner of the empire, um, to uh, India, uh, to Central Asia, to uh, northeastern Greece and Thrace, and to Egypt. Xerxes looks like he's doing the same thing. He's at least beginning that pattern, going to the frontiers a few times in this giant moving uh, royal spectacle. And I think that's showing that he is a legitimate king, that he's worthy of succeeding his father, and that he can go a little bit farther than Darius. He enhances the spectacle, though, by adding a much larger navy than Darius would have used in his expeditions. Uh, and the idea is it's performing rule of the world. You're bringing token contingents from all over the empire. Most of the soldiers are Iranian. Most of the sailors are from the Mediterranean coast. But you probably bring small groups from every province, again, to show the empire is bound together, internal rebellion is quelled, and everything is good. The king can still perform justice by punishing this one select group on the edge of the world. That, I mean, that makes... Absolutely perfect sense. I mean, there are shades of so many other imperial traditions in that. I mean, Ottomans, like the, the early Ottoman rulers up through Suleiman the Magnificent, same deal, um, you know, especially early in your reign, you've got to go out, you've got to show the flag, you've got to go to the edges. It, it helps to conquer something because then you've got some goodies to give to the members of the imperial elite who are both your biggest supporters and your biggest threat. Uh, so there's practical dimensions to it. There's ideological dimensions to it. There's religious dimensions to it. All of those things go together very neatly. So if you're Xerxes, obviously we know Herodotus is telling us that the Greeks won. The The whole narrative of Western civilization depends on the idea that the Greeks won. Obviously, Xerxes probably isn't happy with the results of the Battle of Salamis and the Battle of Plataea. But do you think he would have thought the campaign as a whole was a success, measured on his terms, not those of Herodotus or the Greeks or 2,500 years of accreted tradition? He must have insisted that it was. And again, this is where the Persian artistic evidence is so valuable because we have something that was being used uh, and these seals are being produced in multiple copies. We seem to have the same or similar images on various different objects. That suggests a visual campaign and probably an oral campaign to say that the king triumphed. He went to the edge of the world with his court. He burned Athens and he came home. Uh, Herodotus has... Artemisia, the tyrant of Halicarnassus, advised Xerxes to say just this. Basically, you won. You, you burned Athens. You punished it. You did what you set out to do. Um, now you should 
go home and cut your losses. Um, a later author, a, a, a Roman orator, Dio Chrysostom, has an invented dialogue centuries later uh, where he has a fictitious Persian say a similar thing. Uh, yes, the, the campaign to Greece, Xerxes went there, killed the king of Sparta, burned down Athens, collected spoils, and went home. There must have been, uh, of course, frustration with the real defeats that happened at Salamis and Plataea. The human loss of life was real, and it's difficult to measure it exactly, but it must have been significant. Certainly tens of thousands of people must have died in the course of this campaign when you consider all of the different violent events and casualty situations that come up. Xerxes was personally present watching the Battle of Salamis. Some recent scholarship has argued that maybe he wasn't even there, but I think it's hard to discount the weight of tradition we have for royal observation. And part of the symbolism, the press conference idea of the royal campaign, is that you want to have the court viewing the king, viewing the battle. Uh, that's part of the royal image, the oversight. So the great naval spectacle turns into a fiasco. And this creates an image problem, I, I think, for Xerxes. How do we distance ourselves from the defeats? And how do we maintain the focus on the successful, healthy royal journey to the frontier and back again, burning down your main objective and bringing home spoils? So he probably does that in a number of ways. Um, again, Roman comparisons are useful. You can think about the Battle of the Teutoburger Forest and the disaster of the Roman general Varus in Germany, um, who's closely connected to Augustus and Tiberius and their regime until he loses. And then there's this effort to scapegoat him and distance the imperial family. I would argue that uh, Xerxes probably did the same with failed Persian generals in Greece. But he can also launch other spectacles of distraction on, on the way home. Uh, so there must have been victory parades and captives to, to show off. Also, before he goes home, right before he leaves Sardis to go back to Iran in 479, Xerxes holds a betrothal ceremony for his son Darius, who's supposed to be his heir, the crown prince. Uh, and who doesn't love a royal wedding? The, the idea of a family dynasty spectacle where you gather the whole court together, a court that's probably been mourning the actual personnel losses. Some of the king's brothers and cousins are killed. But you switch the atmosphere to celebration and to looking towards the future. The dynasty is safe and will go on with the next generation. This constant sense of ceremony and spectacle, I think, helps in distancing and insulating the king from those bad generals who, who must have lost divine favor somehow and, and brought about those setbacks. No, it, it all makes perfect sense. And I mean, and there are so many parallels, I think, in a narrative sense. The one that the one that gets me the most is Lepanto in 1571. Right. So there's, you know, another battle that is supposed to have saved Western civilization or what have you. The Ottomans rebuilt their fleet in the next two or three years. So the Persians are defeated in their invasion of Greece. Let's say that's true. It's not like they go away. The Persian Empire doesn't collapse. One of the signs of a stable and healthy polity is that it survives losses, is that it, it is that these kinds of things do not lead to a structural breakdown or the end of the imperial system. They can absorb failure in ways that are often productive and further the kind of institutional solidity of the empire itself. Absolutely. This played into a, a wider transition in the Persian Empire 
um, where they're moving away from the conquest phase and into the uh, next phase of consolidation and, and stability. Um, you can see this under Xerxes' son and successor, uh, Artaxerxes, who comes to power uh, 15 years after the failed invasion of Greece. Um, Artaxerxes ultimately will oversee diplomacy and the establishment of a probable peace treaty between the Persian Empire and Athens. Uh, after several decades of skirmishing in the Aegean, the Persians have lost direct control. They've lost some garrisons and tax collection ability uh, along their Aegean frontier. Um, not all of it, but you know, significant localized losses. At the same time, Artaxerxes responded to Athenian attacks on Egypt and Cyprus, trying to prize those away from the empire. And these Persian efforts are a military success. Uh, so he's able to negotiate a peace with Athens where he concedes their ability to tax the Ionian Greeks in exchange for the ending of their attacks on other parts of Persia's Mediterranean territories. And that prompts regular exchange of embassies. Uh, that prompts uh, a surge in economic trade, all of which can be portrayed in triumphal terms from the Persian point of view. So what happens in the big picture, uh, Xerxes' expedition is important, and it does have setbacks and royal embarrassment. Artaxerxes, the next king, doesn't seem to go on personal military campaigns, certainly not in the western half of the empire. Uh, and again, it's a shift to a more mature style of running an empire. But the shift to diplomacy with the Athenians and the Spartans still exerts empire, power, and influence, uh, just in a different way. Uh, ultimately, that gives way to the Peloponnesian War, where Persia finally finances Sparta against Athens. And this, this is the last thing I want to ask you about. The overriding point, and you wrote a fantastic book on the relationship between um, Persia and Sparta and Athens going on um, up past the end of the Peloponnesian War, is that in popular culture, we tend to think of the Persian Wars as being this big, discreet, massive, impactful event, which to some extent it is, but it's also the beginning of this incredibly long and important process of continuous interaction that flows back and forth in both directions. This is, it's the beginning, not the end. Absolutely. Uh, and really, it's part of a more complex story and a more exciting story of trade and diplomacy and accommodation. Uh, and of course, there are still moments of conflict. Persia, in that following 65 years after the peace with Athens, Persia will fight Athenians again and Spartans again in certain contexts uh, at localized levels. But ultimately, the Persian Empire is able to present itself as an indispensable economic partner and even more so a diplomatic patron to various Greek city-states. Um, this reaches its climax in 386 BCE with the so-called King's Peace uh, imposed by King Artaxerxes II, in which Sparta and Athens and Corinth and Thebes and Argos and all of the smaller Greek city-states acknowledge that Persia is the master of the Ionian Greeks east of the Aegean, uh, as well as in Cyprus. And the mainland Greeks agree that it will be illegal for any of them to force other Greek cities into uh, their control, into an empire. And it guarantees the right of all Greek city-states to local autonomy and self-government with Persia as the guarantor. Uh, and the idea is that this political freedom is granted to the Greeks by the Persian king. Uh, now, in the long run, of course, 
that is hard to enforce. And the Persians have many other agendas, such as trying to reconquer Egypt in the fourth century. But Alexander is not inevitable. Uh, the Greek attack and conquest of the Persian Empire in the 330s BCE is not in any way an inevitable outcome of Xerxes' failure to win a couple of battles against Athens and Sparta 150 years before. That is a fantastic way to sum things up. Professor Highland, thank you so much for your time. I absolutely loved this conversation. This was fantastic. I learned so much, and I sincerely hope I get to have you on again to follow up, talk a little bit more about the Peloponnesian Wars in Persia and Sparta. Thank you. I really enjoyed that, and, and uh, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you again. Appreciate it. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Tides of History ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Thanks so much for joining me today. Be sure and hit me up if you'd like to chat about anything we've talked about on Tides or something you'd like to see. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA or on Instagram at Wyman underscore Patrick. I write on other topics at patrickwyman.substack.com. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Morgan Jaffe. From Wondery, the executive producers are Jenny Lower Beckman and Marshall Louie. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking, what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami? There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.